all over the world. Democracy and freedom are under siege today, and all our colleagues can think to do is to sell out our democratic allies and sell out the cause of human rights and then impeach a cabinet secretary working diligently to solve the immigration problem that they claim to care about. Sounds about right. Of course, it is a day that ends in Y, so, yeah. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. You gotta expect it. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. And so... We meet again from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Fairmont, West Virginia, on WEFR. Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, hey, just a reminder, we will have full coverage of Thursday's landmark hearing at the landmark oral arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court on whether Donald Trump is disqualified entirely or even just in Colorado from the 2024 presidential ballot uh, due to having engaged in insurrection in violation of the 14th Amendment's Section 3, the Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause. We will have full coverage of that on our next thrilling broadcast. Yeah, it's just a little historic. Just a little. Hi, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Hi. And, you know, while everyone seems to be assuming that uh, Trump will be allowed to stay on the ballot through some jiggery pokery or <laughs> pure applesauce or argle bargle as the late Antonin Scalia might have said uh, some of that from the right wing justices in order to argue that the Constitution doesn't say what the Constitution actually says well those people could be right but as our guest on yesterday's show uh, Ernie Canning noted I wouldn't bet the farm either way really this is history in the making then again, what isn't these days? <laughs> True. Uh, it's not completely over out here in Southern California where we've had a history making, what, three days or so of rain. But the sun uh, poked her head out for the first time in days today. Just for a minute. Don't be fooled. So, yeah, well, but if I have a sunnier outlook than usual. That might be why. That might be it. Also, I, I think a sunny outlook, Desi Doyen, 
is helpful these days. <laughs> Pay attention. You could use a sunnier outlet from t- outlook from time to time. <laughs> Even as everything continues to fall apart, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, it seems, and not just in the U.S. House, which saw some epic fails on Tuesday evening after we got off the air, but pretty much everywhere else these days. Um, we need to start, however, in Nevada today, where the state held vote-by-mail presidential primaries on Tuesday in both the Republican and Democratic races. We will start with the Democratic side, since that is a bit, shall we say, simpler to make sense of. Joe Biden won. He received almost 90% of the vote. He picked up all 36 available delegates to the surprise of no one. He defeated everyone else, which included spiritual guru Marion Williamson and a whole bunch of people that you have heard of even less than you have heard of her. Uh, She received almost 3% of the vote, while none of these candidates, yes, that is now an option in the newly created Nevada presidential primary system, uh, none of these candidates garnered 6% of the vote. So none of these candidates defeated Marianne Williamson, but lost handily to Joe Biden, even uh, as a message was, I guess, sent by a number of Nevada Democratic voters who selected none of these candidates. Now, on the Republican side, the message was much louder Much easier to understand, the four times indicted, twice impeached former president and GOP frontrunner for the 2024 nomination, Donald J. Trump, well, he opposed the Nevada's uh, Nevada's decision to run an all-vote-by-mail statewide primary this year, and he demanded an in-person caucus for Republicans instead. Moreover... His state GOP flunkies created a rule that anyone who participates in the primary will not be allowed to have their name on the caucus ballots and that party delegates will only be awarded to whoever wins the caucuses. Thus, Trump's one remaining viable opponent-ish, Nikki Haley, well, she was on Tuesday's primary ballot, but not on Thursday night's upcoming caucus ballot. And Donald Trump will be on the caucus ballot, but he was not on the essentially beauty contest that was the state's Republican presidential primary. Thus, you would think that Haley would have easily bested whatever other names there were on the primary ballot on Tuesday, but if so, you would be sort of wrong and sort of right. She did defeat all the other named candidates on Tuesday, including the vestigials from an earlier point in the GOP primary, like Mike Pence and Tim Scott, along with several names of people that nobody has ever heard of. But she lost bigly to none of these candidates, the line of the ballot that essentially allows voters to register a protest vote against those who are listed, the listed, the named candidates on the ballot. So Haley lost the essentially one-person race that she was running in uh, with none of these candidates reportedly taking over 63% of the Republican vote in the primary in Nevada on Tuesday. And Haley came in second place with just over 30% of the vote. So less than half of 
none of these candidates. In other words, she lost to what essentially amounted to a placeholder line for Donald J. Trump by 33 points in an election that he wasn't actually running in, but sort of kind of was anyway. Uh, in truth, while Trump pretended to oppose the state's new vote-by-mail primary, he really shouldn't. Uh, while there are some concerns about fraud when it comes to vote-by-mail, there are few, but yes, indeed, some, there are far more concerns about 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems where uh, not even one single vote cast on them can ever be known to reflect the true intent of any voter after an election, which Nevada still forces on the vast majority of voters at the polling place on Election Day in the state. They, they've done so uh, for years, though they recently kind of wised up in most of their counties there, particularly the largest by far, Clark County, home to Las Vegas, and the second largest by far, Washoe County, home to Reno, uh, to at least allow all voters to cast a hand-marked vote-by-mail ballot if they choose rather than turning out to the polling place and using the touchscreens, which nobody can ever know if they accurately recorded the vote. Which is where otherwise at the polls, you know, they will most likely be voting on these unverifiable and wildly vulnerable touchscreen voting systems. But as long as Donald Trump is out there in Nevada telling people, oh, don't vote by mail, well, they're going to vote unverifiably, I guess, come November. So handmarked paper, even if cast by mail or deposited in person at the county office or into a drop box, is still better than touchscreen voting, but Trump objected, so his local apparatchik arranged for a caucus in which he would almost certainly receive all of the state's available GOP delegates, no matter what. The uh, GOP caucuses in Nevada will be on Thursday with 26 delegates up for grabs. I wonder who will win. And also on Thursday, by the way, February 8th, the U.S. Virgin Islands will also be holding their Republican caucuses with five delegates up for grabs. In case you're wondering, and I know that you are not, Donald Trump currently has 33 delegates. Nikki Haley has 17. 1,215 are needed to win the GOP nomination at the party's Republican National Convention this July when one of the candidates the currently leading one, is likely to be busy in court facing felony indictment charges. That'll be fun. Uh, that, as the party itself is facing quite a bit of dysfunction, the state chair of Nevada, once considered a swing state, will be on trial in just a few weeks himself after being indicted as a fake elector for Trump in the 2020 election, the one that Trump lost, including in the state of Nevada. Three other state GOP chairs in battleground states, Arizona and Michigan, as well as Florida, have all been ousted in recent weeks because of various forms of scandal from rape allegations to bribery allegations to fundraising failures. That would be the uh, chairs, the state chairs of the Law and Order Party, <laughs> the GOP, and on, uh, and on Tuesday night. Again, after we got off air, news broke that the chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna Romney McDaniel, 
who was originally placed into that role as head of the RNC by endorsement of Donald Trump, uh, she will reportedly be stepping down from her role as the titular head of the national GOP smack dab in the middle of a presidential election year. That news comes following a private meeting with Trump in Florida on Monday after, as AP reports, uh, she faced vocal opposition from a faction of the party following um, Trump publicly questioning whether she should stay on the job. What did she do wrong? I don't know. But the pair seems to have agreed uh, to not make any final or formal decisions until after South Carolina's February 24 Republican primary, in which Trump is seeking to deliver a knockout blow to his last major challenger, Nikki Haley, the former governor of that state. McDaniel's potential ouster highlights the growing influence of Trump's far-right MAGA movement in GOP affairs on the eve of a new general election season, reports AP, as calls for her ouster have gotten louder by, well, you know, MAGA celebrities like Steve Bannon and so forth, who blame McDaniel for their repeated election losses since 2016. Sure. Sure, it's her fault. <laughs> I, I can't think of anyone else they might want to blame. A uh, MAGA election denier, of course, of Trump's choosing is likely to take her place in the near future, though it will have to be approved by the RNC's executive committee through a vote, which could turn out to be a lot of fun for everyone. It's always great when all the Republicans get together to vote. <laughs> uh, and, and maybe it'll be a vote-by-mail election. You never know. But it's not just the Republican Party, the uh, the political machine uh, that is mired in dysfunction right now. The Republican legislators in both the House and Senate <laughs> are demonstrating just how terrible they are at their jobs and how terribly dysfunctional they are and just how terrible they are at legislating. Just in case America could use a reminder, it has been, after all, you know, a month or two now since the Republicans in the House have fired their own leader to replace them with a random new one. But absolute chaos and dysfunction broke out in the U.S. House on Tuesday evening after we got off air when House Republicans took an epic face plant in their long, pointless effort to impeach someone, to impeach anyone from the Biden administration. So how'd that go uh, on, on Tuesday night for them? Well, TPM's David Kurtz rounded up some of the coverage from the mainstream corporate outlets like the Times and the Wall Street Journal, etc. Quote, an embarrassment for the party, wrote the Wall Street Journal. Truly one of the most embarrassing days in recent House GOP, raved Punchbowl News. Republicans in Congress suffered a humiliating series of setbacks on Tuesday on critical elements of their agenda, turning the Capitol into a den of dysfunction, said the New York Times. So you see, it's not just that, you know, that it's not just us noticing this, that lefty guy, old lefty Brad Friedman on his podcast bashing Republicans again. It's not just us. Quote, the fail vote was a stunning rebuke. Of, months of a months-long investigation into Mayorkas that had raised concerns among legal experts and even some Republicans, wrote the Washington Post. As AP reported it on Tuesday night, in a dramatic setback 
House Republicans failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, forced to shelve a high-profile priority for now, after a few GOP lawmakers refused to go along with their own party's plan. The stunning roll call on Tuesday fell just a single vote short of impeaching Mayorkas, stalling the Republicans' drive to punish the Biden administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. With Democrats united against the charges, the Republicans needed almost every vote from their slim majority to approve the articles of impeachment. But they lost three of them. And there was a dramatic, I would say, frankly, heroic appearance uh, and vote cast by one of the Democrats. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Back to AP, a noisy, rowdy scene erupted on the House floor as the vote was tied for several tense minutes 215 to 215. A tie vote in favor of impeachment is a failed vote. The resolution would not pass without one more vote. Several Republican lawmakers, led by the impeachment's chief sponsor slash super genius, Congresswoman, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, she surrounded one of the holdouts, Wisconsin's Republican Mike Gallagher. He refused to change his vote. With the tally stuck, Democrats then shouted for the gavel to close out the vote, which was done by uh, Republican Party House Speaker slash loser, at least in this case, on Tuesday, Mike Johnson. He did not look very happy about that. One member of the uh, GOP leadership did change his vote from yay to nay in order to meet the House rules to allow them to bring the matter back up for a vote again later, which they could do any time. They were saying they wanted to do it on Wednesday. Congressman Mark Green, Republican of Tennessee, said he was, quote, frustrated. He's the chair of the Homeland Security Committee who uh, put through these articles from his committee. He said, but we'll see it back again, he promised. Johnson uh, said they fully intend to reconsider the articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, quote, quote, when we have the votes for passage, unquote. And as I note, that could be as early as Wednesday, but we will see. In the end, three Republicans opposed the impeachment. That was Gallagher, Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, Ken Buck of Colorado, and Tom McClintock of California. None of them Republican squishes. By the way, these guys are all three of them are longtime, you know, Tea Party uh, slash Freedom Caucus uh, folks. At one point, however, and here was the drama. Here was more drama. Democratic Congressman Al Green of Texas. He had missed votes earlier in the day. He dramatically arrived, showed up from the hospital in a wheelchair after having had emergency surgery in order to cast his vote against the impeachment, essentially stopping it in its tracks. As Bloomberg reports, after he arrived on Capitol Hill, Green was taken to the attending physician's office where a bed and other preparations awaited him. He said, quote, I stayed there until I went upstairs for the vote. Now, Marjorie Taylor Green complained later that uh, they were Democrats were hiding Al Green or something like that. Isn't that what she said? Yes. They were they were hiding him. It's unfair. Anyway, uh, uh, thank you, Congressman. 
The outcome, as AP describes it here, this again, this is AP, not me. The outcome was another dismal result for the House Republicans who have repeatedly been unable to use their majority power to accomplish political goals or even keep up with the basics of governing. Not since 1876, they note, has a cabinet secretary faced impeachment charges and Tuesday uh, was the first time that a sitting secretary would be uh, facing impeachment. 148 years ago, Secretary of War William Belknap, who was involved in actual high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, had resigned just before the vote, so he wasn't even in office when he they voted on his resignation. So Mayorkas was the first one. Uh, but as to his high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, I don't know. They uh, haven't shown any evidence of any high crime or misdemeanor well, no, of any kind. Nobody seems to be able to name anything other than he's carrying out Joe Biden's immigration and border policies. And they don't like that. They don't like it. Uh, well, they pretend they don't like it they, because they pretend that the border and immigration policies it represents an existential crisis to this nation, a threat to our very nation. McClintock, he's one of the he's the California Republican who voted against impeachment. He said in a memo that the charges, quote, failed to identify an impeachable crime that Mayorkas has committed. Is one of the Republicans admitting that he said the articles of impeachment from the committee explain the problems at the border under Biden's watch. But he said, quote, they stretch and distort the Constitution. What? Not my congressional Republicans. The House Democrats united against the two articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, calling the proceedings a sham designed to please Donald Trump and charges that do not rise to the Constitution's bar of treason, bribery or high crimes of or and misdemeanors. Jim McGovern, Democrat of Massachusetts, was a little bit more uh, uh, to the point, a bunch of garbage, he said. He called Mayorkas a good man, a decent man who's simply trying to do his job. Experts have argued that Mayorkas has simply been snared in a policy dispute with Republicans who disapprove of the Biden administration's approach to the border. Even if Republicans are able to impeach Mayorkas, he is not expected to be convicted in a Senate trial since Republican senators have been uh, less than warm to the effort and it would take a vote of two-thirds of the Senate to actually convict and remove the DHS secretary at an impeachment trial. The Senate could and probably would, if it ever got to them, simply refer the matter to a committee for its own investigation, delaying any immediate action, uh, perhaps any action at all. The impeachment of Mayorkas landed quickly uh, onto the House agenda after Republican efforts to impeach Joe Biden over the business dealings of his son seemed to uh, not be working out very well. Democratic House leader Hakeem Jeffries said the Mayorkas impeachment vote was a stunt by Republicans to sow chaos and confusion. Well, that part worked. Uh, and to appease Trump. Jeffries said, quote, no reasonable American can conclude that you're making life better for them with this sham impeachment. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland offered uh, a few more details on what is really going on here during debate on the House floor on Tuesday before the vote. What makes this farce a tragedy is that Secretary Mayorkas and the U.S. Senate have been working for months to achieve precisely the immigration and border compromise the GOP has been demanding. 
And miraculously, they got to a bipartisan immigration agreement for billions of dollars more in Border Patrol officers, immigration judges, fentanyl detection machines, a far tougher border. It was good enough for Senator Mitch McConnell and dozens of GOP senators, and it was good enough for the Wall Street Journal, but the House megas would not take yes for an answer. Why? Because Donald Trump doesn't want a border solution. He wants a border problem, nothing else to run on. And Vladimir Putin certainly doesn't want $60 billion going to the heroic people of Ukraine defying his filthy imperialist invasion. All over the world, democracy and freedom are under siege today, and all our colleagues can think to do is to sell out our democratic allies and sell out the cause of human rights and then impeach a cabinet secretary working diligently to solve the immigration problem that they claim to care about. Oh, uh, but not only do they claim to care about it, Congressman, they have told us over and over and over again that it is an existential crisis for this nation. It is an invasion of our sovereign borders by terrorists and rapists and drug dealers who are invading our country, taking it over. If we don't have a border, we don't have a country, Donald Trump and all of his minions keep saying over and over and over again. This is a serious problem that must be corrected immediately. It is so bad, in fact, that Republicans vowed they would not send any more money or weapons to Ukraine, which is actually being invaded by a hostile fascist nation hell-bent on rolling back democracy itself in Europe and elsewhere across the globe. But no more money for Ukraine unless the bill uh, here in the U.S. includes a huge border package. That is what they insisted. So Democrats agreed to add a huge border package to the bill. And Republicans in the Senate worked out a bipartisan deal, a very tough one, with many, frankly, objectionable things in it for Democrats. But they made a deal anyway. They compromised, they came together, and they came up with legislation because Ukraine really is an existential crisis for democracy. And Republicans have been insisting that so is our southern border. Okay. So they agreed on a package in the Senate to send to the House, which had said, the House had said no Ukraine package, which, by the way, also included money to Israel and Taiwan, but no Ukraine package without funding for the border. But once they agreed to the package over in the Senate, Speaker Mike Johnson called it dead on arrival because Donald Trump told him he needed it as a campaign issue. He needs a crisis on the border. Guess it's not that ex existential after all if he's going to allow it to go on for the next nine or ten months. Because he can't run, he's going to have trouble running against the remarkable economic numbers being clocked in right now by Joe Biden's economy. And so now Republicans are literally insisting that they will only pass an aid package for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan if it doesn't include border funding. The exact same thing that they had insisted that it did include or they wouldn't pass it. And they were literally willing to, well, not literally, figuratively willing to throw their own Republican Senate negotiators under the bus for having made this very conservative deal with Democrats. Lead negotiator James Langford 
Republican senator from Oklahoma, of all places, he was censured by his own state Republican Party for brokering this deal. He said it was he was not only thrown under the bus by uh, by Trump and his own party, but then they also backed up the bus to roll over him again. On Wednesday, on the Senate floor, where uh, Democratic leader Chuck Schumer brought this compromise bill to the floor, this very, uh, I should say, right-wing bill very to the draconian, floor. Very draconian, yes. In order to you know get Republicans on record filibustering their own bill. Langford had this to say about it. Some of them may have policy differences. Some of them have been very clear with me. They have political differences with the bill. They say it's the wrong time to solve the problem or let the presidential election solve this problem. In fact, I had a popular commentator four weeks ago that I talked to that told me flat out before they knew any of the contents of the bill, any of the content, none, nothing was out at that point, that told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you. Because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. By the way, they have been faithful to their promise and have done everything they can to destroy me in the past several weeks. That was hard right Republican Senator Jim Langford from uh, from Oklahoma. He sounds sad and surprised, and he shouldn't be. No, he should not be surprised. Now, by the way, all of this comes on the heels of Texas Governor Greg Abbott, also on the hard right, hard right, playing along uh, in his role by claiming that the border is so dangerous, is such a menace, is such an immediate threat to the nation itself that he has had to deploy the Texas Military Department and the Texas National Guard to erect razor wire and prevent the federal border patrol from being able to access the border at all in some places. Texas had to take it over. And the Biden administration ha has had to sue Texas which was eventually ordered by the Supreme Court a week or so ago to allow access to the Border Patrol to the border, to cut back the razor wire so that they can access the border again to do their job in enforcing federal border policies. The court eventually sided with the Biden administration, but not before a, a mother and her two young children drowned in the Rio Grande because Texas blocked federal officials from being able to answer the distress calls. And now, as some experts argue, Abbott is still blocking federal officials in defiance of the U.S. Supreme Court. That's how important and existential this is. Still putting up razor wire in what some describe as an attempt to spark a second civil war. Why? Because the border, which is so important that Republicans are now refusing to actually adopt an incredibly conservative border bill that was created by Republicans because an election year issue they believe will help Donald Trump is, is more important than the actual existential crisis that they told you this nation was facing, an invasion of our country that they say is going on day after day even as we speak.
And Joe Biden and the Democrats are willing to do nothing about it, except they are. Here's Trey Crowder, a comedian who uh, calls himself the liberal redneck on these very points last week, because frankly, he's much funnier than I am. Well, things are getting a little secession-y down there in Texas, y'all. And I know you're like, what else is new? Yeah, they love it. We all know that threatening to secede is as much of a time-honored Texas tradition as 10-gallon hats and losing in the playoffs. It's just what they do, baby. I'm sure when there's a cold snap this February and their whole grid fails, they'll come to their senses. But for now, they're on one. Why, you ask? You know why Mexican stuff. That's right. See, recently in GOP land, they realized that their election strategy of bitching about how bad the economy was was being undermined by how not bad bad the economy was and they needed to pivot is that xenophobia's music i hear that's right you know you know what time it is it's time to head down there to the border dress up like a cowboy start throwing up razor wire and calling the most desperate people on earth terrorists y'all know Borders get wild. Texas is refusing to yield to the government's authority down there. Texas says, our oh, federal government ain't got no right to tell a state what to do. It's like, ah, oh, yes, if only there was something from our history which very explicitly and violently clarified that exact point. <laughs> now, sorry, buddy, but I think Honest Abe and them done and answered that question a while ago. But Abbott's not alone. He's got 26 dumb, dumb govs with him, Republican governors who stood with Texas and said, we also like Confederacy stuff. It's getting wild. And I say, according to Republicans, the crisis on our border is of an existential magnitude, and Biden and the Dems won't do anything to fix it. That's what they say. Right? So recently, some of the Republican colleagues came into the office and said to leadership, hey, you know how we're always saying Biden and the Dems won't fix the border? Yeah, damn straight. Right, well, good news. We worked with Biden and the Dems to author a bill which would fix the border. Isn't that great? You did what? What are you, stupid? Who is this guy? Why would you... You worked with the damn dude. That's rule number one. You never work with the damn. No, I know. I know. But I only worked with them to fix this problem that we have for the American people. Yeah, that part's even worse, man. Fix the problem. What are you, Antifa? We, we don't fix. <laughs> if we fix things, then we wouldn't have anything to bitch about. And then who would vote for us? Huh? Use your head, man. That's how they responded. All right, but that's not all. At the same time that was happening, they also were filing articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas for, you guessed it, not securing the border. So that means Republicans in Congress came in and with a straight face, they said, all right, two things on the agenda today. Number one, we got to impeach Mayorkas for not securing the border. Number two, maybe more important, we got to make damn sure and kill that bill that would secure the border. All right, is that good? Okay, I got a tea time. Crazy. And why are they doing this? You know, because Daddy Donnie said so. That's right. Trump came down and said, don't you dare fix the border. I need that for the election. Not the only thing like that he said. He recently said he hopes there's a depression in this country because that would help him in the election. Y'all, they're saying it out loud. They're not even trying to hide it anymore. They're saying it all publicly. I know it's hard to believe, but right now, against all odds and inadvertently, these people are telling you the truth about themselves, which is they need things to be bad in this country. When things are bad for us, that's good for them. They succeed when America fails. And considering that, what else is there to say? Not much more, frankly. Nope. Uh, that's Trey Crowder uh, saying in about three minutes what I said. It took me 30. But <laughs> uh, so not much more to say, except that the House face plant on Tuesday over Mayorkas's uh, impeachment was not their last one of the night. While they refused to pass a package that includes funding for the border, they are now hoping to prevent any money from being sent to Ukraine. And so they're breaking up the aid packages for, into separate votes. But even that they seem to be failing at. The bill that Mike Johnson brought to the floor on Tuesday night after the Mayorkas vote failed was a vote for aid for Israel. It failed, too. 
Yes, this speaker and this Republican Party cannot even pass an aid bill for Israel. What does that tell you about their ability to pass anything for the American people? So, yeah, there is an existential crisis in this country, but it ain't the border. We have seen the crisis, and it is you, Republicans. Quick break, and we're back with... uh, Something else ahead on the broadcast. <laughs> I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know it's hard out here for a pain It is hard out here for a pimp, even for a fake pimp, even for a guy who fakes being a fake pimp. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com now uh, 20 years strong. Here is a, a timely correction, but it's not from us. We try to do them as quickly as possible in the rare event that one is needed. This one is from one of those fake news outlets that Republicans have been hoaxed into believing is a real one, which is not very difficult to do to hoax them into that. Anyway, this one is a correction to an item that was reported originally in 2020. Yes, four years ago. And the correction to it was just posted this week. Oh, and apparently it's being issued by the former head of this fake news outlet only due to a legal mandate requiring that it be published as part of a settlement in a lawsuit, it seems, filed against pretend journalist James O'Keefe, formerly of the fake news outlet calling itself Project Veritas, until he was fired by his own company, Project Veritas, for reported massive financial fraud and abuse of employees. So you remember him? He was the guy who created those fake acorn videos years ago, back in 2010, I think it was, when he was pretending that he walked in uh, dressed as a pimp to local outlets of the longtime community organization called Acorn, which helped low- and middle-income folks register to vote purchase housing, claiming that uh, they, uh, O'Keefe was claiming that uh, Acorn had helped him and his prostitute girlfriend, she wasn't really, she was just dressed like one, uh, to set up sex trafficking rings. The whole thing was a scam. It was all BS, but it succeeded in killing that decades-old community organization as the supposedly real media, like the New York Times, etc., went along with it and reported it as if all of this was real until, at least in the case of the New York Times, I was finally able to force them to make corrections to (laughs) their own reporting and a whole bunch of stories. That took years to get them to admit it. So, no, uh, O'Keefe never went into any of those acorn locations dressed as a pimp. 
It was all pretend video. He did it afterwards. None of the employees at any of the uh, Acorn outlets ever advised O'Keefe and his scammy partner, Hannah Giles, she was playing the prostitute, to commit crimes. In fact, the people who worked at Acorn did the opposite. They advised them against committing crimes. Anyway, Jimmy O'Keefe released a correction this week, not to the Acorn scam. Uh, to correct that, he had to pay a few hundred thousand dollars to uh, Acorn employees. Um, but nonetheless, that scam made his career anyway. A lot of money to be made by lying on the Republican side. Anyway, here's what uh, James O'Keefe posted to Twitter on Monday night, February 5th, 2024. Just to be clear. Quote, in November 2020, I reported that election fraud had occurred in Erie, Pennsylvania during the 2020 presidential election. This story was based on Richard Hopkins' claim that he had overheard Robert Weizenbach, the Erie postmaster, that's Erie, Pennsylvania, direct another USPS supervisor to illegally backdate mail-in ballots. Mr. Hopkins has since come to learn that he was wrong. Neither Mr. Weizenbach nor any other USPS employee in Erie, Pennsylvania, engaged in election fraud or any other wrongdoing related to mail-in ballots. With this update, I am aware of no evidence or other allegation that election fraud occurred in the Erie Post Office during the 2020 presidential election. Remember that? Four years ago, that claim that, oh, someone had heard someone overhearing someone who had claimed that thousands of fake or late ballots were backdated by postal workers to somehow help Joe Biden steal the election from Donald Trump in Pennsylvania. Trump still repeats that crap today. So O'Keefe's note uh, on Twitter, suddenly out of nowhere on Monday, goes on to include a statement labeled as an Update, an update from Richard Hopkins. In November 2020, I, Richard Hopkins, reported to Project Veritas that I heard a conversation between Robert Weizenbach, the postmaster for Erie, Pennsylvania, and another supervisor concerning the postmarking of election ballots. I only heard a fragment of the conversation and reached the conclusion that the conversation was related to nefarious behavior. As a USPS mail carrier at the time, I was on heightened guard, considering the many allegations of, quote, widespread fraud plaguing the 2020 presidential election. As I have now learned, I was wrong. Mr. Weizenbach was not involved in any appropriate, inappropriate behavior concerning the 2020 presidential election. The uh, USPS Office of Inspector General investigated and found that neither Mr. Weizenbach nor any other USPS employee in Erie, Pennsylvania, engaged in election fraud or any other wrongdoing related to mail-in ballots. I apologize to Mr. Weizenbach, his family, the employees of the Erie Post Office, and anyone that has been negatively impacted by my report. I implore everyone reading this statement to leave the Weizenbach family alone. Hmm and allow them to return to their normal, peaceful lives. Richard Hopkins. And that was the statement that James O'Keefe included with his statement about uh, Project Veritas, his company, falsely reporting that election fraud had occurred in Erie, Pennsylvania. 
O'Keefe doesn't apologize. O'Keefe doesn't even say it was false. He just said, oh, this other guy told me, so I guess I had to report it without checking it out. That's what he posted on Monday night. This week, four years after he did this, after his supposed investigative news organization falsely claimed that massive election fraud took place in Pennsylvania and that it, because of it, they should stop Joe Biden from winning the state that he won by about 85,000 votes. So, oops, sorry. But he didn't say sorry. So what actually happened here, as uh, Ryan Riley, an actual investigative reporter over at NBC News reports this week, Republican provocateur James O'Keefe and his former organization, Project Veritas, have settled a lawsuit filed by a Pennsylvania postmaster after the group spread a postal service worker's false claims of fraud during the 2020 election. A lawyer who represented Weisenbach The Erie postmaster who filed the lawsuit in state court confirmed that it had been settled on undisclosed terms. Attorney David Hook told NBC News, quote, the only comment I'm allowed to make is that the case was filed, was litigated and settled to the satisfaction of the parties. So clearly O'Keefe, who was removed last year as the head of Project Veritas, uh, when he when he tweeted this week that the story, quote, was wrong and that he was, quote, aware of no evidence or al- other allegations that fraud occurred in the 2020 election in Erie, uh, he was almost certainly required by the terms of the settlement to post what he posted. Lord knows he would never have simply posted a correction to anything if it was not under if he wasn't under legal threat to do so. Midas touches Ron Filipkowski, a former Republican, uh, put it more directly than, than I on his Twitter feed. He cited Jimmy's post. He says, quote, he falsely accused an innocent, hardworking postal worker of voter fraud. The postal worker sued his lying ass. This statement today is part of that settlement. And uh, protect democracy, a self-described anti-authoritarian group that was involved in the suit on Weizenbach's side, said in a statement that the case was, quote, resolved in a manner acceptable to all parties. O'Keefe and Project Veritas had boosted the claims of Hopkins, a Trump supporter who worked as a mail carrier. Hopkins retracted his statement, by the way, way back in November of 2020. So it's not like this was new news. He just finally decided to retract. He retracted back in 2020 after Senator Lindsey Graham, another super genius, cited those claims in a letter to the Justice Department at the time. Did Jimmy O'Keefe retract his reporting at the time? Of course not. Former President Donald Trump, in a tweet after the election, called Hopkins a, quote, brave patriot. And the Trump campaign subsequently cited those claims, those false claims, in actual litigation. This settlement now comes, as NBC notes, uh, after the uh, right-wing group Project Veritas laid off employees, suspended operations last year. Hannah Giles, who worked with O'Keefe on those fake Acorn Pimp hoax videos, she was tapped to replace him last year as the chief executive. Well, she announced in December that she was leaving 
Project Veritas, she wrote on Twitter that she had, quote, stepped into an unsalvageable mess, one wrought with strong evidence of past illegality and financial improprieties. Specifically, she was talking about James O'Keefe, the guy who claims to be an investigative journalist, ferreting out fraud and corruption and financial improprieties. Also in December, a federal judge rejected a First Amendment defense by Project Veritas in connection with an investigation, a criminal investigation, into the theft of a diary belonging to President Joe Biden's daughter that somehow ended up in the hands of Project Veritas. So, yes, that's also what O'Keefe was up to during the 2020 election, and he may be facing criminal charges related to that in the hopefully not too distant future. All right. Uh, yes. I'm pretty sure yes. that O'Keefe's post will not get the same level of media coverage on Fox News or any of the other right wing media outlets or pretty much anywhere else that it did when he claimed than uh, when he yeah. originally made that claim. Yep. I mean, four years after he yep. made that postmaster general's life yep. hell. Yep. All right. Uh, quickly, before we get out of here, uh, a bit of listener mail. Uh, this uh, to uh, Bradcast at Bradblog.com. It's always good to hear from you. Philip Michaels, a longtime election integrity advocate in my old home state of Missouri, uh, where thanks to a small group of folks like Philip, Missouri, finally a few years ago moved to all hand marked paper ballots. I think it was back in 2020 or prior to 2020, and they have had no problem since then. Imagine that. After years uh, opposing folks like Philip and myself who were pushing the state to do so to get rid of their unverifiable, vulnerable touchscreen voting machines, Philip uh, writes in following my conversation earlier in the week with Susan Greenhall um, of Free Speech for People. She's serving as a consultant in the trial um, in the lawsuit that our friend Marilyn Marks and the Coalition for Good Governance are bringing. They filed this back in 2017 before Donald Trump and James O'Keefe decided to pretend to be election integrity advocates. As a matter of fact, back then, uh, I remember Andrew Breitbart uh, in my Twitter feed telling me that I was a conspiracy theorist because <laughs> I was concerned about these machines. Breitbart was the one who published originally those Acorn videos. Uh, anyway, that lawsuit went to trial last month to force Georgia and its Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to finally move to verifiable hand-marked paper ballots instead of their touchscreens that are forced on all voters in Georgia at the polling place. Philip writes, Brad, I enjoyed the program on the testimony in the suit in Georgia regarding the use of Dominion machines. I'd like to provide some emphasis to one point made there and to add an additional point. First, there was enough info in the program to figure out for oneself that hand-marked paper ballots are probably cheaper. But here in Missouri, one of the talking points against hand-marked paper ballots was always that, obviously, paper ballots are a lot more expensive since there's so many ballots that have to just be thrown away. The facts are, as you know, that paper ballots are less expensive, both operationally and particularly in terms of the capital required to implement and keep operational 35,000 computers all over Georgia. In Missouri, he notes, a single iVotronic electronic voting station cost $5,000, while at the same time paper ballots were then being printed for 25 cents. 
No, in fact, I do believe that I noted in that show that George's machines were essentially $4,000 pens, but I'm happy to underscore Philip's point here. Also, he writes, as pointed out on your show, the effort to take all those machines to the polling places is not small. However, a more important operational cost is the cost of hiring and keeping trained consultants to maintain this mountain of hardware. For St. Louis County the largest jurisdiction in Missouri, the difference between using hand-marked paper ballots that are scanned into the system and an all-electronic voting system was, in fact, millions of dollars. Ultimately, he notes, when St. Louis County finally decided to replace their iVotronic touchscreens, it was undoubtedly the much lower cost of the paper alternative that won the day for the hand-marked paper ballots. Once St. Louis County converted, well before the statewide requirement to do so, the only substantial open resistance to paper ballots melted away. Philip says, I would guess that legislative leaders, in this case Republican legislative leaders, uh, knew that in, uh, in light of the fact that there were already substantial support in their caucus at that point, by that point, for hand-marked paper ballots, the uh, Speaker of the House and the President pro tem of the Senate in Missouri had to make the change to paper ballots before another substantial election because their constituents might very well have blamed them for any inability to believe election results, which is good enough reason for me. And that's true, uh, frankly, whether those folks are MAGA loons or not. Yes, even MAGA loons deserve to have confidence in their election results. They need to have confidence in their election results instead of folks lying to them about those election results. But if they're uh, cast in a computer, there's no way that anybody can have confidence in those results. Philip uh, concludes here, also... One might point out, just for information, that after over 12 years of serious resistance from state legislative leaders and secretaries of state, both Republican and Democratic in Missouri, to moving from electronic voting to hand-marked paper ballots, when the decision was finally made, there was not a peep about it in the local media, anywhere that I could see. Ironically, however, we covered it on this program when it happened. <laughs> yes. Go figure. He says, my guess as to why more fuss wasn't made is that the reasons the legislature would have had to give would have simply been the points that our group of citizen lobbyists had been making for a dozen years, that potentially that would be embarrassing, an embarrassing acknowledgement of a mistake. Thanks for hanging in there. The best to you and Desi. Philip, thank you, Philip. Thank you for fighting that good fight for a dozen years. And he succeeded. He did. They did. It takes a while. Good work. Yep. All right. One more before we get out. Uh, email to bradcast at bradblog.com from Rick G in Oakland, California. Hi, Brad. As a diehard San Francisco 49ers fan, I try not to get caught up in major media stories, which may be superfluous to day-to-day -day events of the real world. However... Now that right-wing heads are exploding, figuratively, of course, in anticipation of the gay-tainted 49ers facing off against the highly caffeinated, woke Kansas City Chiefs, there is a hole in the universe for top-shelf snark. And who better to fill this tremendous void, Brad, but you? <laughs> in fact, I nominate you, Rick. Carry on. This subject line in this note, show the Swifties a little love, Brad. <laughs> 
Rick goes on to say, this is about a smart, progressive, extremely successful female artist who put her money where her mouth is, imbuing the world with righteous values, economic bounties, and highly popular music. He says, for the record, I am not a fan or unfan of Taylor Swift's music. I would not be able to pick it out out of a musical lineup, he says. (laughs) However... Rick continues, I believe this is a major news story about an entertainer who, with a single tweet, can activate tens of thousands of fans to register to vote. I'm glad that she is part of the forces of good. I know you don't cover many sports stories, but this does put the NFL in an interesting light, given its years of misogynist tendencies. Isn't this all relative to the broadcast? You're a loyal listener and supporter, Rick G. in Oakland. No, it is not, Rick. (laughs) At least no more than you have already made it by tricking me into reading your letter on air in full about Taylor Swift and the Super Bowl, which I I told Desi a week ago we would not be doing on this program. This is true, but I do want to highlight that she does encourage young people to register to vote. That's a big deal. And hey, listen, I am sure right after the Super Bowl that the MAGA crowd will find something else to be insanely mad about. Of course they will. Oh, they're going to be mad no matter what happens. Anyway, nice work, Rick. Uh, And good luck to your 49ers on Sunday. I'm I'm somewhat included to get behind the Chiefs from my old home state of Missouri rather than the Niners from my new home state here in California. But uh, either way, frankly, it sounds like I can't lose (laughs) and that the MAGA folks can't win, which is great as well. We have got to get out. Thanks to all. You can drop me an email if you like yourself, bradcast at bradblog.com. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, want to hear it again, want to share it with someone you know, love, or hate, you can do so at bradblog.com for free. Thanks to those of you who support our work by hitting the donate button or going to bradblog.com slash donate. We've been doing this for 20 years. Thanks to listener support from folks like you and Rick and so forth. All right. Uh, Drop me an email. I already said that. You can find me on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and Twitters at TheBradBlog. We'll see you there. Until I see you here next time with coverage of the U.S. Supreme Court's hearing on whether Donald Trump is allowed to stay on the ballot this year. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You know it's hot out here for a Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.